And Father, as we look in your word this morning, help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear what you have for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're finishing, I I hate to say this, we're finishing Daniel this morning. And this has been such a good book and a fun book to teach through and an encouraging and challenging book. I kind of hate to finish it, but that's where we're at. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 12 this morning. If you remember this segment, chapter 12 closes the longest single segment in the book, chapters 10, 11, and 12. We looked last time at chapter 11 where Daniel's latest or last vision was more about the kingdoms that followed the Persian and the Greek kingdoms. It was Syria, the kingdom of the north, and it was Egypt, the kingdom of the south, that followed two of his four generals. And we looked at their history for about 150 years. If you remember at verse 36, we said it's likely, it appears, the text switched from the period of the Maccabees, about 160 B.C., and it looked like it went forward in time to the tribulation period and to the time of the Antichrist. It was clear that a new figure had been introduced there. And so the end of chapter 11 was describing this terrible, terrible time to come yet on the earth. We'll start in chapter 12 at verse 1, which we actually read through last time, but it describes that period. At that time, Michael, the angelic prince, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. We said this is the time of Matthew 24. If you read that, this is the same period of time being described. Starting this morning at verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So at the end of this period, in the future, that we've said, and I'll just mention, Daniel 77s, if you remember in chapter 9, the angel told him God's appointed 490 years, 70 periods of seven. And we said 69 of those are historical. The one left is what we call the tribulation period, the one last seven-year period yet to come in the future. This says, verse 2 says, at the end of that time, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake to everlasting life. This is a resurrection. At the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, there's going to be a resurrection. If you look in Revelation 20, feel free to turn there if you like. If not, let me just read from this. It appears that this is the same resurrection spoken by John in Revelation chapter 20, where he says, after Jesus returns to the earth in chapter 19 of Revelation, he says, I saw the soul's of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and this follows on the period of the tribulation, the same period Daniel's describing, the souls uh, of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, the Antichrist, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is a resurrection of at least the tribulation period saints. Verse 5 there says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, this resurrection at the front end of the, of the uh, thousand years, is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. It appears that Daniel 12, 2 is this same resurrection. 
In Daniel 12, 2, though, it says, others will rise to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Probably the best explanation, I think, for this is that this resurrection of the righteous to life before the thousand-year reign Jesus institutes is separated from the others rising to disgrace and everlasting contempt. My suspicion is this is actually two different scenarios or two different timetables. It doesn't appear that those who are raised from the dead to judgment are raised at the beginning of the thousand-year reign, but probably afterwards. If you care to, you can look this up in Revelation 20 at the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 15. That talks about the period at the end of Jesus' thousand-year reign that there will be a great resurrection. And this is the resurrection of the dead. That is the dead apparently of all ages who are raised and who stand before Jesus' great white throne. Some people describe it as the great white throne judgment. But that's a resurrection. But the folks who are part of that resurrection aren't going to life. They're going to death. It says the book of life is open. Their name's not in it. The book that records the deeds of their life is present. They're judged accordingly. And then it says that ends with the lake of fire. So those folks aren't part of the first resurrection. They're part of a later resurrection to judgment. So at Jesus' return, there's a resurrection. There's a little bit of disagreement. Who's all involved in this? You know, if we look back, the church is waiting for a rapture. It's waiting for Jesus to call, call us home to be with himself. It says where we'll ever be with the Lord before this last seven-year period starts up again and he's dealing with Israel again and the nations. Um, probably, some, the best guess, if you will, is that this may include not only the people of the tribulation, the Jews and those saved during the tribulation, may also include the Old Testament saints. The thing this has gone for it as far as an, as an argument or a point of view is it's consistent. That would mean that the rapture would include all who are part of the church age, and this resurrection in Daniel 12.2 and Revelation 20 would be the resurrection of all the Jewish people, the Jews and those who were saved under the Old Covenant, and those who would be saved, Jews and Gentiles, under that last seven-year period also. That would be consistent. I don't know if that's exactly the way the Lord pulls this off or not, but as we're trying to struggle with what to do with these these resurrections and these verses, that seems to be a good way to put those elements together. So a resurrection at the end of this period. Look at verse 3. Daniel's told, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You know, the period they're describing is... It is the most dark period in earth's history. In fact, you remember at verse 1, a time of distress such as never occurred. We read before Matthew 24, Jesus says, if these days weren't cut short, no life would, would remain. That humanity, through its own agency and probably demonic inspiration, would simply wipe itself out. So this is, this is the darkest day. This, this makes anything we can conceive. Even World War II is drastic as that was, this will make anything else pale in comparison, this period. And in that time, Daniel is told that in this dark, dark period, that there will be those who shine brightly. It says like the expanse of heaven or like stars forever. Uh, When things are at their worst, those who belong to the Lord are at their best. And I think what we've really got is in this 
in this end-of-the-world scenario when morally things are terribly dark. Remember, too, this is the period in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. This is not only demonic oppression. This is God's wrath being poured out on a world that's rejected his son. Seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven vials are poured out. God's judgment on the earth. A terrible, terrible time to be on planet earth. And in that context, the angel tells Daniel, there will be those on the earth like Daniel in his day who will shine because they stand out from the darkness. And it says the ones who will do this, it says, have insight. They have insight. If you look up the word, we could say this is wisdom or prudence. Those with wisdom or prudence, discernment, they'll be the ones who stand out. I ask myself, who has wisdom and discernment? Where do you get insight? Where does this stuff come from? My answer, and I think the biblical answer, is that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One. That's what gives wisdom. So in the end, you say insight comes through knowing God and knowing His Word. And again, think of Daniel in his day. Daniel knew God, personal relationship, and he knew His Word. That's what started this whole ball rolling in Daniel chapter 1, which we'll mention at the end again. If you and I in our day want wisdom and insight and prudence, it only comes from one source. It comes from God himself, and it comes through his word. He reveals himself through his word. You remember John 17, Jesus prays for his own. That means you and I also, not just those 12 disciples, 11 remaining disciples. But he said, Lord, make them holy. Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the scriptures. So my understanding is these folks in this coming dark, dark day that have insight, they know God and they know his word. They have wisdom and insight. They know how to conduct themselves. If you and I want to gain wisdom and insight, it's only going to come from that personal relationship with the Lord and from understanding what he says in his word. Listen to what this says in Colossians 2, 2. If I want wisdom and insight in my day, Paul says to the Colossians, he says, attaining all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is God's mystery? Well, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In our day, just as in Daniel's day and as in the the coming dark day to come, if you want wisdom and insight, it's in one place. It's in Christ And it's in his word. Or listen to Philippians 2. We taught through Philippians. It's probably two years ago now. But this is a great, great passage. Same thought as Daniel 12 2. Listen to what Paul says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Well, you will prove yourselves. You will show yourselves. You will display yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you will appear as lights in the world as you hold forth or hold out the word of life. It's the same thought here. Whether it's the dark Gentile days of of Daniel, or whether it's the days you and I live in, morally dark, or whether it's the dark days of the tribulation ahead, in, in each one of those, against the backdrop of moral darkness or spiritual darkness, those who have insight are those who know God, they're in relationship with him, and they know the truth. They know his word. So you and I can stand out like stars, just like these folks will, just like Daniel did. That's the story of his life and his friends' lives. They stood out from the Gentiles around them because they knew their God, they knew his word, and they obeyed him. You know, I come away asking this 
do we, do you, do I stand out in the world that we occupy today? Do we, see, do we stand out as those who have insight? Are we leading righteous lives that lead others in righteousness? It says that's what they'll do. Not only will we stand out because of our insight, but it says we'll lead others to righteousness. And you can imagine in those dark days, if you don't follow Antichrist, you pay with your life. So at great cost, these folks are leading a righteous life and the effect of their life is to lead others to righteousness as well. Hopefully we're doing the same. Look at verse 4. He says, As for you, Daniel, conceal these words. The vision's over. Seal these words. Seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. If you look down at verse 9, it says the same thing. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. This is the only occasion in the book in which Daniel's seeking understanding and he doesn't get it. You remember in each of the other visions, some he understood right away, but others he didn't understand. And so in the vision, he asked the angel, what does it mean? And he's always been explained. This is what it means and this is what we're talking about. This is what you're being shown. In this, he says, don't worry about it. It's sealed up. This isn't for you to understand. Daniel becomes a conduit here. He doesn't know the impact or the importance or the significance of this part of the message. But he's given it, and he writes it down, and we get the benefit. And I trust these saints in the future will have the benefit. They probably more even than us will understand more fully what this passage means, what its impact and importance is. But Daniel doesn't. Sometimes you and I are a conduit for understanding for someone else. Verse 5 again. If you remember way back at chapter 10, Daniel's vision, he's standing on the banks of the Tigris River. And that's where he is again. He says, I looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the bank, on the other bank of the river, the Tigris. One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And you remember we said almost certainly the figure standing above the river is the Lord himself. I think that for a couple of reasons. The description of the Lord, of the person above the river is the same as the, as the Ancient of Days in chapter 7. But also what he does here, I think, distinguishes himself as the Lord himself. To the question, how long will it be? He says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He raised his right hand and his left, so solemnly uh, showing his hands to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, swore by God the Father, that it would be, the time left would be a time, times and half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. It's not essential that we identify this person as the Lord himself, but humans are told not to swear. Jesus tells us, you don't swear. Just say yes or say no. God, however, swears. Hebrews says that because he could swear by none greater than himself, he swore by himself. When a God who cannot lie swears by himself, it's a way of saying the same thing twice. You can be absolutely sure that this is true. There's a time, times, and half a time left. Hopefully this sounds familiar. We've looked at this before, chapter 7 and 9 specifically. This appears, again, to be one half of the last seven-year period prophesied in chapter 9, the 70 periods of seven. Three and a half years. When we looked at the Antichrist before, we saw that there's several ways to slice this, but you get references to three and a half or seven-year period in several repeated episodes of both Daniel and Revelation. And it says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, 
Zechariah 14 makes it clear that the Jews in the land right now are a sovereign nation with a great military. They're considered one of the the world's best, defending themselves against terrorists within and and hostile nations without. Uh, They're going to lose the war, though. They're going to lose this fight. And Israel is going to be overrun. And Jerusalem is going to be sacked. And Zechariah 14 talks about that. And this says the power of the holy people, the Jews, will be shattered entirely. Before King Jesus, before the Messiah returns to save them, it looks like all is lost. It looks like Israel and Jerusalem are gone. They're totally overrun by the Antichrist and by the armies that he leads. And it's only then that he comes in and saves the day. It's it's at the very darkest point of earth's history that Jesus will return. Verse 8 says, As for me, I heard but couldn't understand, so I said, My Lord, what will the end or what will the outcome of these events be? What does the end of the story look like? I've got, okay, there's a three and a half year period left. I understand that. There's been 77 periods that are going to be fulfilled, but how does it end? And the angel says to him, Go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed, sealed up until the end. I'm not telling you that, Daniel. You don't know what the end is going to look like specifically. Listen to what he does tell him. Verse 10. I will tell you this, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight, those who know God and know his word, they'll have insight, and they will understand. What he does tell them about the end is, some will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. Uh, In the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says, just before his return, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy, remain filthy. The one who is righteous, practice righteousness. And the one who is holy, keep himself holy. I think the thought is this. Just before Jesus returns, he's basically saying, you've made choices to those on the earth. You've made choices. And, and he wants those choices to be fully revealed, to become fully blown what they are. So those who are wicked, those who have been confirmed in their choice to follow the Antichrist and wickedness, Jesus says, let them remain wicked. Those who have chosen Christ and holiness, let them be fully revealed as the holy ones, as the righteous ones. That here at the end of the age, it's essentially it's this, it's that those who belong to Christ will be fully revealed as those who belong to Christ. And those who have chosen wickedness will be fully revealed as those who have chosen Antichrist and wickedness. There will be absolutely no doubt. I think the Lord is just saying, let let the choice that everyone has made be fully revealed for what it really is. So that when he comes back, his judgment will not only seem to be righteous, it will be absolutely clear. Because the wicked will be absolutely wicked and the righteous will be absolutely righteous. It will be clear to all. Uh, Look at these words, purged, purified, and refined. Purged, purified, and refined. We could say selected, made white, laundry list. You know, you take the the dirty clothes and you make them white. And refined is is smelted. It's melted. It's it's metal. Uh, I don't really care for this passage, frankly, this purged, purified, and refined. Uh, This is talking about the darkest days in earth's history, And the angel doesn't tell Daniel exactly what it looks like, but he does say this, I'll tell you this, that you'll be purified, that those who belong to you will be purified. 
And, and what are they purified and purged and refined through? Well, through the terrible, terrible trials and judgments around them. That's what will purge, purify, and refine them. And you know, the truth is, when I pray to God, I pray for blessing and prosperity. Lord, I'd like some blue skies, rain at the right time, and green lights. That's, that's what I'm, I want to be comfortable, and I want life to be good and easy. That's what we all want. And you know, the, the trouble is that that's not the world we inhabit. That's not, not the way it works. And whether I like it or not, I never pray for, I never pray for um, you know, people that pray for patience, you know. I never pray for patience. I never pray for trials. They, they always come. And if you hang around in the Christian life long enough, you know this. You never have to pray for these. They will come. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That might be from the world. That might be from Christians. But you'll have trouble. It's absolutely a guarantee. The upside of the downside, the benefit of the pain, is that God says that just like he'll do this in the future for these folks, and he did for Daniel and Daniel's friends, he'll do for us today, which is he'll take the trials, he'll take the dark days, he'll take the tribulations and the difficult times we go through, and he'll turn them into something good by refining us, by doing something good in us, by changing us more into his image. Romans 5 and 1 Peter 1 say exactly the same thing. And listen to what James says. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And the thought in James is not that people should love trials. That's not the thought at all. It's not that we are delighted that we're being persecuted or troubled. The joy is supposed to be related to this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect result. You will be perfect, not morally perfect, not without sin. You'll be grown up into the person God wants you to be. You'll be a full-grown Christian, and you won't lack anything. That's the thought here. I don't pray, pray for troubles. They come. But I try and remind myself in the troubles, those are the times and the processes which God will use to change me. And, you know, if we take a, a piece of ore out of the earth... It might have gold in it, but it's surrounded by a lot of debris that's not valuable. But when you fire it, when you burn it up, when it goes through the heat of the fire, then you get that separating influence, and the gold is set aside. What's valuable is left. My daughter's in chemistry, and I'm sure she knows this, that fire just reduces elements to their most stable components. Did you know that? Oxidation. Fire just, just reduces whatever's there to its most stable components. I was in a house fire many years ago. It was on Christmas Eve. In fact, it was in this neighborhood. It was one block up. And this house was destroyed. And literally, there was probably eight inches of water on the second floor floor. I was afraid that my friends and I were going to go through the floor with the weight of the water and our size and bulk. But in the midst of this chaos and destruction, there was a silver cross on the floor that I happened to see and took out and, and gave to the owner of the house. It was an heirloom, and she was glad it was from her grandmother or something. But you know what? It didn't suffer any destruction in this fire. And that's the thought here. You know, these, these difficult times, the fiery times in your life, in the end, they cannot harm you. In any ultimate way, they cannot harm you. No matter what's done against you, no matter how unfairly someone treats you, no matter what you lose, in the end, in the, in the real end, 
the troubles and the fires of life and the troubles will have the effect of purifying us, of refining us, and of leaving the life that we have in Christ and faith more pure than it was before. So there's nothing to fear from it. We don't like it, and, and, it's, and it's tough. The trials are tough. Tribulations are tough. But God, who can turn even evil to good, God uses it for good in our life, and that's the thought here. So James is so bold as to say, Rejoice when the trouble comes, not because you like the trouble, but because God has promised to use the hard thing for good in your life and mine. That's the upside. That's why we can rejoice. And frankly, it's the reason why no matter what trouble comes in your life, and there will be a lot of them, you can have hope. You don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to be uh, without hope or discouraged because you can rest absolutely in the promise that God has said he'll take that bad thing, that hurtful thing, that trial, and he will make something better of it, out of it in your life because he'll change you. He'll clean you up like a garment that was dirty and then it's washed or like a chunk of ore that's melted so that the gold or the precious metal is separated. That's what he'll do through these times. That's what he'll do for the Jews in the future and it's what he'll do for you and I now. Look at verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice, speaking of three and a half years, is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, three and a half years. How blessed is the one who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,300 35 days. Now, we won't go into this a lot because we've talked about this in the past, but certainly this is the second half of the seven-year period. And from the time that Antichrist comes to the Jewish temple, desecrates it, sets himself up as God, that's going to mark three and a half years left of that seven-year period. This will happen in the middle of that seven-year period. There's three and a half years left. This says, blessed is the one who makes it past 1290 days, past this three and a half year period, 45 days later. The the immediate question becomes, what's the significance? What's going on in these 45 days? My suspicion is this. Matthew 25 verses 31 to 45 talk about a judgment. Following Jesus' return in Matthew 24, he judges the nations. This is the sheep and the goats. And I suspect what we have here, this 45-day period that follows the end of the three and a half years, is probably the cleanup period. It's the mop-up period. The war is over. The battle is won. But what we have to do now is clean up things before we institute the new kingdom. So the judgment in Matthew 25, I suspect, is right here in this 45-day period. So the thought is those who make it through the judgment, not just through the three and a half years, but through the judgment before the Messiah, before the new king who's come back, they'll institute the new kingdom. If you're a Tolkien fan, this is like in the last book, The Return of the King, King Aragorn and the armies of the West, they defeat Sauron at his kingdom. They win the war, they win the battle, they win everything. But it's a lengthy period before they return to the white city, before his bride comes, before he's coronated officially as king and institutes his new kingdom. There's a waiting period. I think that's the same thing here. Or if you think of Noah and the ark, The ark rests on the mountains of Ararat, but they don't come out immediately. It takes a period of time that the waters recede, Noah and the animals and his family still in the ark, so that the end, the full end of the period, the end of the year, before they come out and they they begin a new life under a new covenant. 
That's, I think that's the thought here. So this 45-day period, it's a cleanup. It's the judgment. So that when you've made it through the end of the tribulation and the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25, you're entering the new kingdom. You're entering the thousand-year reign of King Jesus on earth. Verse 13, the last verse of this great book, As for you, go your way to the end. And remember, Dan's close to the end now. He is an old man. He's in his 80s or 90s at this point. Go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest. That is, you'll die, Daniel. You're going to die probably soon. But you'll rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. I love the fact that this book ends with a verse about resurrection if you've studied the subject, you know the Old Testament does not have a lot of clear passages on resurrection. There's not a whole lot. This is one of them. This is one of the clearest. Daniel's told, you're going to die, but you'll rise again. You're going to rise again. Did you catch this phrase here where he says, you'll rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age? What do you make of that? What does it mean, your allotted portion? Your allotment. You know, if I go to school and somebody allots me a locker, what, they've designated my locker, haven't they? If I'm allotted something, someone has chosen something out and they've given it to me. This angel tells Daniel he has an allotted portion after his resurrection. I find this interesting. Ephesians 2.10 says that God, related to Christians, God has ordained, he has chosen out, he has allotted ahead of time, Certain good works he wants you and he wants me to do. There's lots of things God doesn't require of me in this life. There's things that he wants Joe to do that he doesn't want me to do. And he wants Dan to do that he doesn't want Rachel to do. He's got specific works, people for you to influence, places for you to be that are just specific to you. Ephesians 2.10 makes this clear. He's got good works he's ordained for you, for us as individuals to do. I think this is the same concept that he's telling Daniel. Daniel, not only are you going to rise from the dead, but God's already chosen the place you're going to fill in his new kingdom and for eternity to come. This is a comfort to me. In Matthew 20, if you, if you think this is a little far-fetched, Matthew 20, verse 23, James and John's mother have asked Jesus that her son sit on his right and left hand in his kingdom. This is his reply. He says, It's not mine to give. To sit in my kingdom on the right and the left hand isn't mine to give. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus says, my father has prepared that the place to sit on my right and my left hand is already prepared for two people. He doesn't tell us who it is. We'll see one day. He doesn't tell us who it is. But he says God has specifically prepared it for these individuals and not for others. The reason I say this is comforting to me, uh, you know, in capitalism... Uh, the smarter you are, the shrewder you are, the more refined you are at something, you can get, a, get ahead. You, know, you, can, you can climb the ladder. This says, as I understand it, this says that no matter where God puts me here on the earth, all he requires of me is to be faithful with the things he's given me to do. I don't need to worry like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons 
in their sense of religion, they've got to work up the ladder. Their place in heaven, it, the, in fact, which heaven they occupy, or if they're part of the 144,000, it all is determined on their work, how much money they give, how many souls they win, etc., etc. It's all dependent on their effort. This says to me, whatever sphere God has put me in life here, all I have to do is be faithful with the tasks he's given me. I don't need to worry about Joe's work or Dan's work, Sean's work, anything else. All I have to do is be faithful. And he says he's allotted a place and a sphere and a role for me in eternity already. And again, for me, the reason this is comforting is I don't have to work to get it. It's, it's already a given. So all I have to do is be faithful. There's no pressure. But also, who's doing the allotting? Who's preparing it? Well, it's a father that loves you and I perfectly. It's the Father who has all wisdom, all understanding. It's the God who wired you and I together, who knows us perfectly, who has perfectly chosen a sphere and a role and a task and a place in his family for you or for I to occupy in eternity. This is very comforting to me that I just have to follow my dad and I'm good to go. He's already ordained those things, ordained the works for me to do on earth, ordained the place he wants me to fill in eternity. I don't have to worry about these things. I just have to be faithful and do the things he asks me to. The, the, the last reason I find this verse encouraging about resurrection, think of Daniel. He has served the rulers of two of the world's greatest empires. But the last thing he's told is, when you wake up, you're going to become an administrator in the kingdom that displaces every other kingdom and in the kingdom that has no end. You've been an administrator under these big world empires, but Daniel, you're going to rise again and you're going to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his kingdom that will have no end. I love this. He has seen mighty powers and mighty kingdoms, but he'll rise to the greatest king and the greatest kingdom ever, the kingdom that will have no end. I love this. Let's summarize chapter 12. It's that you and I are like Daniel in his day and like saints in the future that if we have insight, if we have a relationship with God himself, and if we have wisdom from his word, it says you'll shine like stars. We should, be, we should stand out from the culture around us. It's a morally dark, repugnant culture. You and I should be different. We should stand out. If we know Christ, if we know his word, we'll have insight and we will. The second thing is, you can count on God to use the difficulties, the trials in your life to refine you, to do something good. He did it with Daniel. He'll do it with the Jews in the future. He'll do it for you and I now. He uses suffering and hard times for our good. And the third thing is, you can count on your dad and your Savior to perfectly fit a role and a sphere for you in eternity that'll be absolutely just right for you. You know, I've never had a suit tailored, and when I was a kid growing up, I hated trying on clothes because I grew too fast. My arms and my legs were long. It was hard to find something that fit. You know, when you put on something that fits you just right, you go, ah, that's what it'll be like. You'll put on a suit of clothes. You'll put on a roll in eternity that's just right for you. That's what God's promised. And let's summarize the book. This is easy and brief. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do you remember when we started way back at chapter 1? 
Verse 8, we said, no verse 8, no book of Daniel. What did Daniel and his friends do? They purposed in their heart that they would not defile themselves in the little issue of food. They said to God, we're going to be holy, whatever the cost. They drew a line in the sand. And because of that, when the dark trials came, the fiery furnaces and the lion's den, they stood fast because the decision had been made at verse 8 about food. We asked ourselves, have we drawn a line in the sand? Have we made a commitment? The key verse in chapter 7, verse 27 was that it didn't matter about these Gentile powers that ruled the world because in the end, God's empire, his kingdom and his king would displace all others And not only that, but his people would rule with his Messiah, with his king. That's the kingdom that you and I, and frankly the Jews, are waiting for today. And in chapter 12, we saw that those who are wise lead others in righteousness. Those who have insight shine in the darkness. That should be our aspiration today, no less. No less. Let me close with an illustration I hope is helpful for you. Uh, a story in a book, a story in a book, a book and a story in a movie. That's one of my family's favorites. It's a period piece. If you see the movie, you'll know what I mean. Uh, it's a Roald Dahl book. It's called, the book is called uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The movie's called Willy Wonka. If you've not seen it, this is a classic, and I highly recommend it. But uh, in Willy Wonka, you don't see the connection immediately with Daniel, but it really is there. Think of it this way. Charlie Bucket is a poor, despised kid on the streets of London. He doesn't have a dad. His mom is the washerwoman, and he sells newspapers on the streets to try and help the family make ends meet. He's the despised kid at school because he's the poor boy. But his heart's right. And Charlie Bucket gets one of the golden tickets that allows him the privilege with only a few others to go to the most wonderful place on earth, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And the winner of these tickets who go through, gets, they get a lifetime supply of chocolate. This is Charlie's dream, and he gets to go. So along with a select group of others, he goes through Charlie Cho- uh, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And there's a river of chocolate. If you've seen the movie, it's great. There's a boat on the river, and you can eat everything around you. It's edible. It's the most wonderful place. They're, they're thrilled to be there. And Charlie Bucket, like everyone else, he's really enamored, and he's impressed by the wealth around him. Unlike the others who tour the factory, though, besides one minor lapse, he conducts himself with integrity and honor. And he doesn't know it, but the whole tour is a test. None of them are told this, but the whole tour is a test. And at the end of the movie, when Willy Wonka intentionally treats him bad, sounds quite unfair, it's not, it's just, but treats him bad, and Charlie is tempted to betray Willy Wonka by giving an everlasting gobstopper to the person he assumes is his nemesis, uh, Mr. Slugworth, instead of doing this, which he could, and that's the test and that's the temptation, he walks over to Willy Wonka's uh, desk and he puts the everlasting gobstopper on the desk. And he doesn't know it, but he just passed the test. And so Willy Wonka, when he does this, Willy Wonka, who's looking for a replacement, Willy Wonka says... So shines a good deed in a weary world. And then he jumps up and he tells Charlie, you won. And Charlie says, so I get the chocolate. And he says, no, you don't understand. You get more than the chocolate. You get everything. Because I was looking for somebody to help me run my chocolate factory. And you get the chocolate factory. 
And you're going to run it with me, and then you're going to run it forever. You'll take care of all these people, the Oompa Loompas, and you'll take care of the chocolate and everything else. You didn't just win the chocolate, you passed the test. You're going to run the chocolate factory. You get everything. See, and I think you and I, we're like Charlie. We're like Daniel. We're going through life, and it's not always easy. And we have lots of trials. We have lots of setbacks. And they're tests. And God says to you and I, be faithful. Do the right thing. Stay in relationship with Him. Read His Word. You'll have wisdom and insight. You'll shine like stars in heaven. And in the end, you get the kingdom. You get everything. You'll rule and reign with the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. You get the chocolate factory. It doesn't get any better than that. And that's the future we have. That's the hope of every Christian. You'll be with Christ forever. You get it all. Let's pray. Lord, what a great, great book this has been. What a source of encouragement and challenge. Father, and what a great note to end on that there's resurrection to come, that your kingdom displaces all other kingdoms, that your Messiah, your King, displaces all other rulers, that, Lord, those who know you, no matter how badly they're treated during this life, they rise again to rule and reign with you forever. Lord, these things are above our ability to conceive or to ask. Father, thank you for your work on our behalf in sending your Son to die for our sins to make us a part of this great, great plan of redemption. Lord, thank you that we're part of a first resurrection, that we don't fear a second death. Lord, help us to have insight by simply staying in relationship with you and in your word in conducting ourselves with integrity so that we can stand out from the world around us. Help us to be wise as Daniel was in leading others to righteousness. Lord, you've made this easy. You've just asked us to obey, just to be faithful and obey. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to offer our lives as a thank you to you for what you've done, for what you're doing, and what you've promised to do in the future. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.